Let us bow together in prayer. Speak, Lord, in the stillness while we wait on thee. Hushed, each heart to listen in expectancy for thy dear name's sake. Amen. As so many of our friends know, we have suspended the series entitled Humanity's Hymn Book in order to bring something of the blessing as well as the message of the recent Congress on Evangelism in Berlin to my own people here and to all those who share with us in these days. Last week I spoke of the Congress in terms of a time of confession, and I depicted those closing scenes when, moved by the Spirit of God and broken, some 1,200 delegates knelt before God to seek His cleansing, to seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit, to rededicate their lives to the great task of evangelizing the world. This morning I want to speak of the Congress as a time of conviction, when God spoke to us in terms of a new message. God willing, next week, a time of commission. But it's appropriate that these messages should come right now as we open our great missionary rally and the Congress or conference to follow, as you've heard, Monday night, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And I do trust everyone in this large congregation this morning will make it their business to be with us, together with those listening over radio. I want you to turn to your New Testaments in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21, and we shall come to these verses in due course. My theme this morning, one race, one gospel, one task, a time of conviction. The World Congress on Evangelism in Berlin was not only a time, as I've just said, of heart-searching and confession, but also of serious study and conviction. The theological papers that were read, the devotional messages that were received, and the reports that were heard from all over the world, not to speak of the discussion periods and workshops, all combined to stimulate thought, to clarify truth, and eventually to strengthen faith. Emerging from these days of waiting upon God, a new conviction concerning one race, one gospel, one task came upon us all, not least of all, my own heart. And so I purpose this morning, as God shall enable me, to restate in biblical terms what we consider to be our evangelistic position, as well as our evangelical position regarding the one race, the one gospel, and the one task. To the first, the one race. At this moment in history, the world is drastically divided. Language against language, religion against religion, nation against nation, color against color. In the midst of all these divisions, the church must sound out the clear note that God sees all men as one. Racism is wrong precisely because all men must own Adam as their federal head even as all believers must recognize that God fashions the new man created in Christ Jesus, the last Adam, without any reference whatsoever to the color of skin or race. Indeed, the Bible teaches us, as we discovered again and again in our days of Congress and Conference, first, what I'm calling the sanctity of the human race, the sanctity of the human race. John opens his prologue with these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became or was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
we beheld his glory, the glory as the, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul, writing on the same theme, reminds us that Christ, who being in the form of God, was found in fashion as a man. These two statements teach, without question, that in Jesus Christ, our Lord, the mosaic of humanity is totalized. In other words, our Savior was not just a man, that he was indeed, but supremely and uniquely, our Savior was man. In him, I repeat, the total mosaic of humanity was finalized and represented. By his incarnation, he gathered up into himself all that is meant by one race, and therefore forever sanctified humanity by his birth, by his life, and by his death. Individuals within the human race can only enter into the meaning of that new humanity introduced by our Savior, by repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But inasmuch as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, yea, God the Son, stepped into the stream of human history and was made like unto man, he has forever totalized humanity under one head, and there is no distinction. The sanctity of the human race. But the Bible further teaches the unity of the human race. Speaking on Mars Hill, Paul could tell the Athenians that God hath made of one blood of all nations for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. The same apostle Paul declares in his letter to the Romans, there is no respect of persons with God. Racism attempts to divide humanity into competing groups on the basis of color. But biblically, this is indefensible and absurd. Neither the law of God nor the gospel of Christ recognizes such a distinction. Why? Because both the law of God and the gospel of Christ are blind to color. God himself sees only two classes of persons in the world of today and down through the centuries, the saved and the lost. The saved who are in Christ, the lost out of Christ without any distinction whatever regarding color. The sanctity of the human race, the unity of the human race, and in the third place, the destiny of the human race. The scriptures reveal to us, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so that every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Evangelism presupposes the solidarity of the human race. The curse that has come upon every man because of sin has made necessary a universal redemption for a universal race. For those who respond to the overtures of grace, there is a destiny in Christ which overrides all fleshly, all carnal, all human distinctions. That's why we read that scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, no man after the flesh. Why? For if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And whether we see a man in Christ or we see him potentially in Christ in terms of our evangelistic task, there is no distinction of flesh inasmuch as any man and every man in Christ is a new creation. And again, for we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. The ultimate destiny 
of all who believe in Jesus Christ is conformity to the Son of God. Indeed, Paul says, for whom God did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, many brethren, brothers one of another, accepted in Christ, absolved before the throne of God by the outworking of that redemptive act of God in Christ at Calvary's cross, without distinction, without color, without culture, or without any other barrier. Those who reject the gospel are likewise found in a solidarity of rejection by God. There is no second chance, but rather separation from Christ, which is eternal loss, separation from heaven, which is eternal hell, separation from loved ones, which is eternal loneliness. The Bible clearly tells us that whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we see that the Holy Scriptures teach with clarity and conviction that there is one race. Beloved friends, I'll never forget throughout time and certainly I'll never forget throughout eternity when the Holy Spirit will make live even more vividly such impressions as have been made here upon earth. Those 1,200 delegates gathered from 106 countries from all over the world, dressed in their national costumes, representing their countries, yet melted and made one in our Lord Jesus Christ. As they rose to sing their hymns in their own language, as they joined spirit with spirit in prayer, as they gathered together for acts of worship and restatement of faith. All oh, the wonder of looking into so many faces, representing so many nations, and to recognize that in Christ they were one. It was a foretaste of that day when there'll be no distinctions yonder in glory, man-made or otherwise, but we shall look into him who is our federal head of a new humanity, and we shall see him as our head, and he will be the captain of our salvation. And conformed to his image, we shall be brought unto him many brothers. One race. It is our conviction. We state it with categorical emphasis and dogmatism. For there are some things on which we must be dogmatic. There is one race. And in our evangelical position, we can hold no other view and no other position than that there is one race. Why? Because of the sanctity of the human race. Why? Because of the unity of the human race. Why? Because of the destiny of the human race, as taught in Holy Scripture. But quickly let us turn to our second point in that great hour of study, morning by morning, when position papers were presented to us. My heart leapt within me as the evangelical position was once more categorically stated that there is only one gospel, one gospel. Perhaps the clearest statement we have on our reconciling message is found in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, read to us a, a little earlier. In these remarkable verses, we have three aspects of the gospel set forth. First of all, what I'm going to call the revelation of the gospel. The revelation of the gospel. Look at verse 19. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. This is one of the most basic statements of the Christian gospel found anywhere in the Holy Scriptures. In these words, the Apostle Paul describes an historical event of revelation accomplished by God, which eliminates all human initiative and all human activity. It's an act of God. God has broken into time. God has revealed himself in Christ. 
God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And this without any human initiation, this without any human activity whatsoever. It's distinctively Christian. God has broken into time and lifts this matter of our gospel and its revelation outside of all reaches of human philosophy or ingenuity or even our scientific age in that it's unique and incomparable and utterly divine. In the words of Dr. Johannes Schneider of Germany, by free decree, according to the riches of his grace, God gave his son to die as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. And in obedience to God's will, Christ took upon himself the sin-bearing that brought mankind back to himself. This is the unique, once-for-all, and unrepeatable fact, valid for all time. Although witnessed to throughout the entire New Testament, this event is dimmed in modern, modern existential theology, robbed of its worth and even denied. To deny the reality of redemption facts is to pull the very foundation from out of the Christian faith. The redemptive historical event of Christ's resurrection is closely related to the salvation fact of his death, for if Christ had not risen, then the saving and redemptive work of God would lose its meaning. Therefore, Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, that if there was no resurrection of Christ, then we should still be in our sins. But the apostles do indeed witness in full agreement that God hath raised his Son from the dead. One of the most brilliant, articulate, and evangelical scholars of our day declared himself in this fashion. Such a revelation of the gospel is diametrically opposed to the theological thinking of men like Paul Tillich, Rudolf Bultmann, Jack Robinson, and others of that kind. Indeed, in the language of Dr. Schneider, an evangelism that falls for this sort of talk is totally without authority. The revelation of the gospel. So we state here in this opening day of our conference that we have one gospel, and that gospel is a revelation. It has not originated with man. It has nothing to do with human speculation or philosophy. It didn't find its beginnings in the device or creed of men. It's an act of God that has nothing human about it whatsoever. In breaking into the stream of human history and revealing himself in Christ, in his reconciling act in Jesus Christ at the cross. Not only have we the revelation of the gospel, however, but the proclamation of the gospel, verse 19, God hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now it's important to observe that just as the revelation is holy of God, so indeed is the proclamation. It is God who has established the word of reconciliation. It is God who has determined the content of the message. It is God who speaks through his chosen messengers. It is God and God alone who does the work of saving through the communication of that gospel. No preacher, nor evangelist, nor pastor has any freedom to dispense the divine word as he wills. He is bound to firm instructions, says Dr. Schneider. As a messenger in Christ's stead, he, like a true ambassador, has to carry out the pleasure of his government, even the government of heaven. I have no right to say what I will. I have no right to put my content into a message. I have no right to proclaim what I consider to be the gospel. The proclamation is a God-given proclamation initiated by the heavenly messenger who came to preach the gospel of peace, who is still in his people through his church, speaking the same message, even the revelation of the gospel of Christ. So our message is not a philosophical conjecture, nor indeed a theological speculation, but the good news of what God has already accomplished in Christ 
through his death and resurrection. The revelation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel. But our one gospel has something else. What I'm calling the invitation of the gospel. Verse 20. Be ye reconciled to God. Be ye reconciled to God. The gospel faithfully preached always precipitates a crisis. No one can remain neutral when confronted with the person of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Therefore, in the very nature of the case, the proclamation of the gospel is also an invitation, a mighty summons to repent and believe the good news. Indeed, it is God who beseeches men and women by us to be reconciled to God. Will you notice that, my friend? The revelation is all of God. The proclamation is all of God. The invitation is all of God. For it's God who beseeches men by us to be reconciled to God. It is God who's in the persuasion. It's God who's in the summons. It is God who's in the invitation. Now, existential theology also knows a concept of decision. In fact, it even speaks of the sin-pardoning grace of God, which gives man access to a new future. But there is no word of atonement in the redemptive historical foundation of God's forgiving grace. Not a word of it in existential theology so popular today. Paul does not ask man to be reconciled to God, as we're being told from seminaries and pulpits and from editorials today. God, God is reconciled to man. God, God has done the work. God has done the work. Man can't reconcile himself to God. In Christ, God has accomplished everything needful for man's salvation. Lost in his sin and guilt, man needs only to accept the completed reconciliation and apply to himself. Man can do absolutely nothing for his salvation. Everything has been done through our Lord Jesus Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's God who came. It's God who was born. It's God who lived. It's God who taught. It's God who died in Christ. It's God who is risen. It's God who sent the Holy Spirit. It's God who gives the reconciling message. It's God who worked through his messengers. And any messenger who isn't allowing God to work through him is not a messenger. He's an imposter. It's God who gives the invitation. It's God who saves. Where can man come in at all? Except to accept by faith. This is our gospel. This is our gospel. Zinzendorf's watchword is still valid for the evangelist today. Those precious words I love to hear and I love to quote. My joy until I die is to win souls to the land. This then is our gospel. And as we have seen in its revelation and proclamation and invitation, it's all of God, all of God, and therefore all of grace all of grace. We now turn to our last consideration, the one task, the one race, the one gospel, the one task. Evangelism is the supreme task of the church. Everywhere and always were to preach the gospel, and nowhere is this more clearly delineated than in the Great Commission. Now, as you all know, this Great Commission comes in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and also in the opening verses of the Acts of the Apostles. In the language of Matthew, however, Jesus tells us all, everyone in this building this morning, everyone hearing my voice, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now I want you to follow me very closely here. This imperative, go ye, immediately follows the indicative statement. All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. 
And I never want you to read that commission without linking it with those words of our Savior. He who would live that spotless life to the glory of his Father, who had gone into death and dealt finally with this sin question, emerged as a seal and demonstration of God's favor and God's acceptance of that holy sacrifice, now stands in resurrection power and declares that all authority in heaven, all authority on earth are given unto him. And in the good and in the power of that authority, he says to his disciples, Go ye. Now as Christian men and women, we're under authority to the risen Christ to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And although you're going to hear throughout these days windows on the world, so to speak, of the needs in various parts of the world, I want to say this. Our call to go to the far ends of the earth has nothing to do primarily with need, for need doesn't constitute a call. Otherwise, we'd be in utter confusion as to which was the neediest place in the earth. And what should we say of the hard countries where we haven't seen so many conversions as perhaps in Brazil or in other very fruitful areas of the earth? And although emotions will be stirred, as they always are, by the stories that tell the greatest and most dramatic evidences of God's power on the earth, ultimately it has nothing to do with population explosion or need upon the earth that should draw our hearts. That is purely secondary. There is only one motive for going to the far ends of the earth. There is only one motive that determines our task. Do you know what that is? It's the authority of Jesus Christ. He has said all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go! And to disobey is criminal disobedience. For any officer to refuse to act when his commanding officer tells him to go is punishable with a court-martial. And in the thick of war, in the thick of war, an officer is given permission to shoot his own man on an act of disobedience. The greatest one in all the universe stands here this morning and he says, there's only one task. And I've been given authority in heaven and in earth. And I'm saying to you, you as an individual, you as a young person this morning, you as an older person, go. You can't do anything else. Not to go is criminal disobedience. And the task is clearly outlined for us. Very briefly, let's look at it. We're to disciple men and women. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. The New English Bible renders this, make all nations my disciples. The use of the possessive my brings us to the very heart of the matter. We cannot make disciples in the abstract. There can be no disciples without a teacher whose disciples they are. So to make disciples of all nations means to make disciples for Jesus Christ out of all the nations of the earth. We have already considered the means by which this, discipli this discipling is to be made. We've already considered that in our previous point. It's by the preaching of the once forever eternal gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to disciple men and women. Secondly, you notice we're to baptize men and women, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Converts who will become disciples of Jesus are to be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The theological implication of this is far-reaching. It means that all discipleship to Jesus Christ involves relationship to God as Father and to the Holy Spirit as indweller. Baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost is a public act. People may become disciples of Jesus secretly, but they must be baptized publicly. So in advancing from discipleship to baptism, the convert moves from the private to the public, from the personal to the corporate, from conversion to church membership. 
and there is no missionary work that has the seal of the Spirit upon it which doesn't ultimately result in the building of the churches of Jesus Christ, the local assemblies. Men and women are to be disciples, brought into relationship with Jesus Christ. They're to be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And they're to be brought publicly to that place where they're acknowledged as the disciples of Christ and members of the local church or of the universal church of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, will you notice where to teach men and women? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. The purpose of Christ in the Great Commission is not fully met when people are discipled and baptized. They've got to be taught. A lifetime of learning and obeying follows conversion until disciples are conformed to the image of the Lord. Moreover, the substance of the teachings, will you notice in these verses? The substance of the teachings. It's all that I have commanded you, said the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that all, had we time to demonstrate it, is included everything he has said in the Old Testament. For he set his seal upon the Old Testament, teaching that he himself is found in the Pentateuch, in the Psalms, in the Prophets. All that he taught when he was with his disciples, and all that he taught by the giving of the Holy Spirit for the production of the New Testament, for he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he shall guide you into all truth and you're going to set forth truth, even things to come. Whatsoever I have commanded you, you teach. You teach. No wonder the Apostle Paul, when facing the elders at Ephesus, you remember, after three years of ministry, got up and with clear eye and bold statement could declare, I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God. Our task, beloved, is not to teach our converts what they want to hear, nor indeed what we want to say, but rather what Christ himself has taught in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, and in the Epistles. This then is our task. Matters of church government, religious administration, social concern, that is to say, getting down to the total man in his need of body, soul, and spirit. And I repeat, there is a social concern and there is a social implication to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as important as all those matters are, unless they're included in and involved in the supreme task of discipling and baptizing and instructing men and women, doesn't constitute the fulfillment of the commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. But evangelical conviction must lead to what I'm calling evangelical compassion. It is one thing to believe, it's quite another thing to behave. Our burden must be to bridge the gap between theory and practice, between outreach and outreach. Our race must be my race. Our gospel must be my gospel. Our task must be my task. And until that comes home to the heart and soul of the youngest boy or girl here, young person or older one, inasmuch as God has a task for you in the little world in which you are right here in New York, or whether he sends you to the far ends of the earth, you'll never become one of his missionaries in the deepest sense of the word. I suppose as delegates, this never came home to us with such power as when we were addressed by Bishop Shandoray, Bishop of Karachi in Pakistan. The evening he got up and spoke to us along these lines and told us how that one race, that one gospel and that one task became his. I'm telling you, we were men broken before God and before one another. He told us the story of his conversion as a backdrop. As a boy, he was brought up as a Hindu. His father died when only a lad, so that he knew very much, he, he knew very little of a father's care and love. But his mother was a gracious woman. 
And although she knew nothing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, inasmuch as she understood the great writings, she was a devout woman of Hindu and Hinduism. She used to take her boy at the age of 17 on pilgrimage, after pilgrimage, and he remembers going to all those holy places where the great prophets had been before, but he said there was an emptiness in my heart. Oh, such a deep, deep emptiness. And then he said, my mother died, and frustrated and torn and empty, I looked for reality. I studied Hinduism to the full, but I couldn't find life. I studied Buddhism only to be brought to an agnostic belief in a nirvana. I was told that all I needed was a million lives, and one day, after the millionth life, I would come to satisfaction. I tried Islam only to be utterly brought to despair when I would weigh up my works as against evil works I had done and find out which would win in the end. And in utter despair at university, I looked around for help and I found a Christian friend. And one day he invited me to come and read the scriptures because his eyes were failing. And he said, as I sat there alongside of him and read the scriptures, he said, I became impressed with such statements of our Savior as I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And I said, here is one who makes claims I've never heard. And we discussed these matters. Then the moment came when my friend had to have an operation on his eyes. And he was told that one eye would be removed completely. The other eye might, might be retained. And there was just the slightest chance that he might see. And said, Chandelray, I looked into my friend's face and those weakening eyes of his. And I said, if this Jesus Christ in whom you believe makes such claims, would it not be possible for him to heal you? And here is a man who's not even trusted Christ as yet. And the Christian friend looked around and he said, are you prepared to pray with me? He said, I am. And he said, without even faith in God or faith in Christ in the Christian sense, I knelt and that night we prayed and we prayed all through the night. Next morning, I took my friend to the hospital. The doctor looked at his eyes. He said, what's happened to you? He said, I don't think I need to operate. They tested the tension on his eyes. It had all gone. And he said, said Chandoray, standing at the door of the operating room, he said, I listened to this conversation. And then I poked my head around the corner. And I said, doctor, do you really mean there's no need for an operation? No, he said. As far as I can see, this man's eyes are he. He said, in that moment, Jesus lived and I was saved. And he was so utterly transformed, he decided to go into the ministry. And he went into a theological college. And he went through his theological college and he got his string of degrees. And he said, when I came back, he said, I want to say it was shame to you men here in this great Congress. He said, I lost my faith. I lost my faith. In a simple gospel that had transformed my life, the one race, the one gospel, the one task was completely dim. I fought in the pulpit, but as I preached, shadows of doubt came passing over me until one day a lady came up to me, a grand old missionary lady, and she looked into my face and said, Chandoray, I want to ask you a question. Do you believe what you preach? And she say, he said, I was annoyed. I was furious. Here I was, a theological man, and I looked at her. What right have you to ask a question like that? And then he said, I was rebuked in my own spirit, and I took her into the room quietly, and I said, why did you ask that question? She said, because you have no conviction or authority in your preaching. And she said, I opened my heart and told her all the truth, that I'd lost my faith. The woman knelt down and led me back to my evangelical faith, and I confessed my arrogance and my pride and my views. 
and I took by faith the authority of the word of God. I took by faith this book as the revelation of God. He said, all those years in the pulpit, I hadn't led a soul to Christ. But in that vestry, that day, life came back. Passion came back. I saw the world as one race, the message as one gospel, the task as one supreme ministry. And I stood to my feet and I went to preach. And he said, since that day, I can say honestly before God, honestly before God, I never preached without souls coming to Christ. And as he spoke, he had the joy of acknowledging that 30,000 people had been saved in Karachi through his ministry. One gospel, one race, one task. Are you prepared to come like Shandor Ray as a little child and embrace the one race and say, my race, the one gospel, my gospel, the one task, my task? Are you prepared for that? Let us pray. Margaret Clarkson, who wrote one of the hymns we sang at the World Congress on Evangelism, puts it beautifully when she says, One is the race of mankind under sin's condemnation. One is the gospel that frees us from death's domination. One is our task, sin, death, and hell to unmask, showing God's way of salvation. Salvation. One is the hope of eternal rejoicing before us. One is the song we shall share in God's heavenly chorus. Till that glad day, let us his mandate obey. Tell the whole world of salvation. I want to ask you as we go to prayer, are you prepared to embrace to your heart this morning? I care not whether you're a student, a housewife, a businessman, a professional man, whether you're a schoolboy, a schoolgirl. Are you prepared to look up into the face of your Lord and say, in these urgent days in which we live, with very, very little left of time to do the task, Lord Jesus, I accept the world as my race. I accept the Bible as my gospel. I accept missionary enterprise as my task. Mine are the hands to do the work. My feet shall run for thee. My lips shall sound the glorious news. Lord, here am I. Send me. Father in heaven, we pray thee that thou will take this message and burn it into my soul afresh that as never before in these final days before Jesus comes back again and opportunities are gone forever, I shall accept one race is my race, one gospel is my gospel, one task is my task. What I pray for myself, I pray for my beloved people here at Calvary. And the friends who've come to join us, representing congregations, not only throughout this country, but throughout this world. Grant, Lord, the result of this morning's service may mean an outreach and an outthrust of Christian living, which is going to mean missionary living and fruitful living for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear our prayer, Lord, and hearken unto our cry. We ask it for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.